0: Well, uh, again this week, um, I'm not going to ask you to stand and read today's text, uh, as is our usual tradition, because again, for a second week, today's scripture is rather lengthy. I think the same thing will probably apply next week, but uh, please turn in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 25. We're going to be considering the entire chapter. Uh, We're approaching the end of this series, Turning the World Upside Down, a study through uh, the New Testament book titled, The Acts of the Apostles. And including today's message, we have just seven weeks to go, and uh, we will be done. But as we come to these final chapters, uh, the the pace of the narrative quickens. Um, for one who is paying attention, each passage is increasingly, I think, captivating, uh, intense, and uh, really consequential. And as we closed out chapter 24 last week... Antonius Felix, the Roman procurator, the Roman governor of Judea, had placed Paul, the Apostle Paul, under house arrest in the praetorium at Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, the capital city of Judea, in those days under the rule of the Roman Empire. And that's precisely where we find him at the start of chapter 25. Uh, but two years have passed, uh, since between last week and this, in the text. Um in A.D. uh and by the way, the year now is uh fifty-nine or sixty, we're not quite precisely sure, but right in there. But in A. D. fifty-seven there was a riot that occurred in Caesarea uh, between pagans and Jews, and the soldiers under Felix's command put it down with such violence that the 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 Jews being outraged prosecuted him according to roman law and were able to force rome to recall felix and replace him with another governor and when this occurred uh, felix left paul in prison he did that as a favor to the jews probably in an effort to smooth their ruffled feathers felix had left such things in such a mess that i mean the economy uh, you name it, lots of uh, crime, um, lots of all kinds of things. Um, but it was a mess, and and uh, Rome apparently determined to send someone of a bit more noble pedigree who could clean up the mess that had been made in Judea, make Judea great again. According to Joseph, the the first century. Uh, Roman historian Portius Festus uh, was a marked improvement over Felix. Festus came from a very different background than Felix. He, Felix was a, a blue-blooded Roman whose family had uh, for many, many generations been influ- influential in the Roman Empire. So look with me at uh, verses 1 to 8, which I've titled Deja Vu all over again. You know what déjà vu is, right? That's that a nagging feeling that you've been somewhere before, um, had a, an identical experience, identical conversation. I had a friend in college who coined the expression "vuja day, uh, what, what she defined as uh, that sense that you've never been somewhere before. Uh, <laughs> but when we read these verses, you'll you'll see what I mean by déjà vu. All over again. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. You know, um, Festus, I think, comes off as a pretty reasonable guy. He he comes off really as a stand-up guy with a a legitimate uh, desire to perform his new duties uh, as governor of Judea with a meaningful measure of justice and with faithfulness. And and because uh, the passions of the Jews had been inflamed against his predecessor, Felix, As soon as he assumed the governorship and arrived in Caesarea, he he wasted absolutely no time. He's a proactive kind of guy. Just three days after having completed that long journey from Rome and getting settled in at Caesarea, he mounted up again and traveled to Jerusalem, which of course is the epicenter of Judaism, the heart of of the Jewish people and Jewish culture. It It must have been apparent to Festus. Uh, how essential it was that some sort of workable arrangement, some sort of agreement had to be established between himself between the uh, and the Jewish high priest and the Jewish ruling council, and it needed to happen right away. Neither did the Jews waste any time laying out their case against Paul upon Festus' arrival in Jerusalem. And now remember that two years, two full years have elapsed, uh, since the last time they attempted to bring charges against him under Felix. In chapter 23, we we read that there had been 40 Jewish men who had taken an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. I started thinking about that the other day and thought, man, it's been two years. (laughs) Guys might be kind of thirsty, a little bit hungry, dead. Think that might actually have happened? Yeah, I don't think so either. But check this out. They they, they attempted to exploit what they m- imagined was Festus' lack of experience. Perhaps uh, his naivete about how things really were. And, and they asked him as a favor to summon Paul to Jerusalem. Could you just get that guy on the road? <laughs> because uh, they intended between Caesarea and... Uh, In Jerusalem to ambush him, to assassinate him. And it's been two whole years. He he had so thoroughly aroused their wrath that that they're still obsessed two years later with bringing about Paul's death. And he hadn't had a chance to affect him in any way in those two years. He'd been the praetorium. You know, we might expect a new governor to, to be inclined to grant the favor to the Jewish authorities, right? Uh, in hopes of establishing a good rapport. And and indeed, Festus wants nothing more than law and order in his region. He has a job to do. He has an emperor to please. He's clear-eyed about the world in which he lives. He he sees things through uh, a Roman lens. He, he seems to place every person in, in one of two camps, Roman or not Roman, and because of Paul's Roman citizenship, Festus can't imagine just turning him over to the Jews. That, that just would not happen. Instead, he, he offers the solution in verse 5, and it occurs to me that he's really being quite di- diplomatic here. On the one hand, he seeks to please the Jews, to appease them by, by continuing the legal proceedings against Paul. And on the other, he reminds the Jews of his own authority as the representative of Rome. And again, Festus moves with haste to to hear the case of the Jews against Paul, to hear Paul's defense. And so on the very next day, after arriving back in Caesarea, he took his seat on the tribunal. Uh, He he ordered Paul to be brought. And and the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem surrounded Paul, it seems to say, and and just uh, brought the very same charges against him that they had brought two years earlier. You can read them in, in chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. They, they melodramatically accuse him of, of stirring up riots among all the Jews in all over the world, of being a, a ringleader, you know, an instigator, um, of the sect of the Nazarenes, this strange group of people, and of trying to profane the temple. And As a friend of mine used to say, same old, same old. Same old, same old. They couldn't prove their charges then. They can't prove them now on this new occasion. So so all Paul had to do in his own defense was to offer a simple, brief, categorical denial of all the charges. In verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. It was that... Mic drop moment, right? End of discussion. In verses 9 to 12, then, we see Paul's appeal to Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Notice that's a proposal. It's an invitation. It's not a command. But Paul said, I I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So again, notice verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? And notice that phrase, before me. Be tried on these charges before me. Festus was, uh, I think, clearly hoping to to begin his new stint as the governor of Judea uh, on a positive note with the Jews. They were his constituency. He was hoping to grant their request of uh, the favor of trying the case against Paul in the city of Jerusalem. So again, he, he proposes that change of venue to Paul. He attempts to provide reassurance by reminding Paul that it would be uh, he himself who would preside at the trial. But Paul wasn't about to accommodate Festus' political ambition at the risk of his own life. Uh, he He hadn't forgotten the earlier plot, to assassinate him. And he anticipated a second attempt if he went to Jerusalem. Nor really could he expect any justice in Jerusalem. It was true that Festus would preside at the trial, but but he was no doubt mindful of two adverse prospects. First, that Festus had the authority to appoint his own jury. And Paul could not predict who might be included in the jury pool in a place like Jerusalem. Second, there was always the possibility that Festus might just flip on him and yield to political pressure from the Sanhedrin. So because he was a Roman citizen and because he was standing before a Roman tribunal at Caesarea, there, there was no valid reason for accepting a change of venue. So Paul took advantage of his right as a Roman citizen and appealed his case to the emperor Himself, And the effect of an appeal to Caesar was, one of the effects, the initial effect, was that any proceedings that were going on in the lower courts with regard to his case were suddenly stopped, just abruptly brought to an end. The prisoner was sent to Rome. So after conferring with his advisors, Festus grants the appeal. To Caesar, you've appealed. To Caesar, you shall go. Interestingly, the Caesar to whom Paul appealed was Nero. And if you know anything about Roman history, uh, that name ought to mean something to you. He, he began his reign in A.D. 54. This is the Nero who in the later years of his reign uh, lost his mind, really became criminally insane, unleashed the power of Rome against Christians. This is the, the Nero who fiddled while Rome burned and accused the followers of Jesus of setting fire to the city and then punished them accordingly, viciously. But it's also the Nero who in the earliest years of his rule was sane uh, and and actually ruled well, gave no hint of the, the extreme cruelty that was yet to come. I've read some authors who suggest that in the same way that Jesus was silent before his accusers, Paul should have remained silent and not defended himself. But I think we have to realize that Paul's circumstances here are, are set in an entirely different context than those of Jesus. Jesus suffered for a couple of reasons. In order, one, in order to fulfill prophecy, and, and then secondly, to die as our substitute, as our Savior. Paul, on the other hand, defended the innocence of, of his conduct for the purpose of demonstrating the purity of Christian character. And, you know, throughout the, the first centuries of the church, those who, uh, who defended the faith would point to the virtuous character of Christ's followers. And, and, and there are many ancient manuscripts from pagan rulers that, uh, where they are lauding the excellency of the character displayed by Christians. Christians were always excellent citizens. So I think it's important that we underline that Paul didn't defend himself to save his own neck. He, he had always been willing to suffer. He had suffered. He'd always been willing to die for the sake of the gospel. Um, so the purpose of his defense here was uh, instead to protect the advance of the gospel, to model the integrity of Christian morality. We 21st century Christians who live here where Satan has his throne can take a lesson Uh, from the way Paul conducted himself in the events described here in Acts 25. Let's move on then to verses 13 to 21. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid out against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, They brought no charge, in his case, of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Well, who is this Agrippa that we meet in verse 13 and who plays such a significant role in the latter part of this chapter? This is Herod Agrippa II. This is one of the Herods. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great had built the city of Caesarea in which these events are taking place. Um, Herod the Great was the Herod during whose reign Jesus was born. He's the one who ordered the deaths of all the babies around Bethlehem, two years of age and younger. Um, And this Herod Agrippa is the great nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded, and to whom Pontius Pilate sent Jesus for judgment. Agrippa was not a superior to Festus. He wasn't, he didn't come to Caesarea because he was kind of Festus' boss. Uh, Actually, uh, Agrippa II was uh, the ruler of the kingdom of Chalcis. I think that's the way it's pronounced. It's in central Greece. Uh, His visit was that of a visiting dignitary. And there's this, uh, woman with him, Bernice, or sometimes it's pronounced Berenice. Um, Bernice lived with Agrippa. She was not his wife, per se. She was his sister. And it was widely rumored that they were engaged in an incestuous relationship. Festus took advantage for the sake of gaining insight into the case of Paul of the opportunity to tap Agrippa's greater knowledge, his greater understanding of Judaism, because uh, Agrippa had grown up uh, in israel so so at point, some point in the course of Agrippa's visit, Festus laid out the facts of paul's case, and he let Agrippa know the three steps he'd already taken that that on his visit to Jerusalem he'd heard the Jewish leader's accusations against Paul. Uh, Their request for Paul to be put to death in in response, he'd insisted that uh, according to the custom of the Romans, the accused must be allowed to face his accusers and defend himself against them. Secondly, that when the Jewish leaders came down to Caesarea, Festus had immediately convened the court, uh, only to discover discover that Paul was not being charged with any crimes against the state. But with religious offenses and with the claim that a dead man named Jesus was alive. And third, because Festus felt out of his depth in religious questions like these, he'd asked Paul if he was willing to be tried in Jerusalem, but instead Paul had appealed to Caesar and Festus then had granted his appeal. So it's clear that, that Festus was attempting to follow Roman law, to allow justice to take its course. Roman procedure followed three stages. These will sound very familiar to you. First, Charges would be prepared and presented by a prosecutor. We would call that an indictment. Second, the the plaintiffs would bring a formal accusation against the defendant. And then third, the case would be heard by the ruling authority. In this case, the procurator or the governor. And and, and in this way, the accused and and his accusers would be brought face-to-face, similar to the provision contained in the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. There, There are, in fact, many parallels between the American legal system and that of the ancient Roman Empire. Uh, and just as an aside, there are many parallels between the fall of the Roman Empire and what's happening in the United States today. But, but the charges that the Jews offered no evidence... Um, I just found a typo. <laughs> um, the Jews offered no evidence for the charges that they brought against Paul. It was a great big nothing burger from a legal or, or political standpoint. But notice what else is taking here, taking place here. And this is a, a really kind of interesting. You've got two Roman rulers discussing together the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Because they had to. But here they are and they're dabbling along the edges of uh, of the most radical the most earth-shattering the most history-changing the most life-transforming reality of all time but as they do that and as we read it it becomes clear that uh, uh, that they're that they're ignorant of the gospel they're ignorant of the most basic tenets of christian faith they may have heard of the christian gospel as it seems felix had but but they held no uh, no understanding whatsoever of its meaning or its power for them jesus was nothing more than another crucified jew in fact the name jesus was a very common name in those days there there must have been thousands of jesuses who were crucified on roman crosses And the strange notion that somebody thought he was no longer dead may have been of some interest to them, but ultimately it was would have been irrelevant to them. And you can almost hear the puzzled tone in his voice, can't you? As, as, as Festus relates this stuff to Agrippa. The doctrinal disputes at the center of this case are, are totally outside the realm of his expertise. Uh, so they're perplexing to him, And to Festus, it's clear that Paul was one who actually believed that this man named Jesus, whoever that had been, had died, but had subsequently risen from the grave. To believe that was crazy, but it was hardly a treasonous crime. He would have regarded it as merely a point of disagreement among the Jews. So here's another reminder that when you and I share the gospel, Uh, we rarely see instant conversion, right? I mean, when we first share the gospel with some people, they just scratch their heads. What's this about? And I've heard it said that, that many people require up to seven or more exposures to the gospel before they'll believe, if they're going to believe at all. Many of us are planting gardens at this time of year. Anybody planting a garden? Some of you? All right. I hope that your plants come up faster than your hands did. (laughs) But when you read the back of a seed packet, uh, you'll usually see how long it takes for the seed to germinate, right? And um, some seeds germinate quickly, some don't. Some germination schedules can be quite long. I remember holding a seed packet in my hand a couple of years ago, Uh, And I was excited about growing. I can't remember what it was. I was excited at the time. But when I read the packet, it said nine months to germinate. And I went, you know, that's that's a long time. When we share the gospel with somebody, we may simply be planting a seed. It's not going to be add water and stir and voila. Uh, we may simply be planting a seed prayerfully hoping hoping that it will germinate and that it will take root. It may bear fruit only when another conversation takes place or another set of conversations take place or another input is received. So one person plants, Paul said on one occasion, one person plants, another waters, but it's God who causes the growth and he does that in his way and on his own schedule. Go with me now to verse 22. Verse 22. You see this man. Verse 22 says, Then Agrippa said to festus I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. I remember that Agrippa's great uncle Antipas loved to hear John the Baptist. He would invite him from his prison cell into the palace and they'd have a, a glass of wine and a, a good conversation. But Antipas was intrigued with John and the things that he had to say. But then one day he ordered that his head should be separated from his body and brought to him on a platter, and it was. We might legitimately ask what might have motivated now uh, his great-nephew's interest in hearing Paul. Was it mere curiosity? Was it a genuine desire to help Festus sort out his dilemma? And the very brief description of verse 23 makes it sound like a, like a really auspicious occasion, doesn't it? You can imagine that Agrippa and Bernice were wearing their finest. Um, the tribunes were wearing their dress uniforms. If there was any armor, it had all been polished. Uh, the helmets were sparkling, and the prominent men of the city were decked out for the occasion. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city, And you can just hear the music, right? The the soundtrack of that. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. In a sense, Festus' words here are are really nothing more than a, a formal public rehash of his prior conversation with Agrippa. In verse 24, he begins his address to the assembly with the words, You see, This man, I think that's an interesting phrase, you see this man, the Jews saw Paul in the same way that they saw Jesus as a a disruptor, as a perpetrator of a great scandal, as a heretic, as a blasphemer. Festus, on the other hand, saw him from a totally different angle. He saw Paul as as a Roman citizen in whom he had found nothing deserving of the death penalty that, that the Jewish community had twice now requested. And then there's Agrippa who on the other hand, who seems to have viewed Paul as nothing more than an amusement, uh, a curiosity, and maybe even just a little bit of a confusion. Festus goes on to say that although Paul had appealed to Caesar and his request had been granted, he had nothing to write to Caesar about him. (laughs) The charges against him were vapid. Any valid evidence of those charges was non-existent. Uh, It seemed unreasonable to, to Festus and probably Quite embarrassing to send a prisoner on to Rome without indicating the charges against him, so again, you can almost hear the anguish in his voice as he asks for help and, and notice the pronoun the key pronoun in verse twenty six I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we after we have examined him. I may have something to write. He's he's making it a group project now, uh, to find something, anything to put on paper about Paul that he can be sent to Rome. It's it's really a surprisingly public and transparent admission that it comes across like I got nothing. Can you find it in your heart to help a brother? In reality, and. In, In light of the absence of any substantive charges that that might be of interest to Rome and the utter lack of any evidence to corroborate the charges that were brought, Festus should have had the courage to declare Paul innocent, to acquit him, to release him. But because of the way the law was written, he was now bound by his agreement to Paul's appeal to Caesar. Caesar. And interestingly enough, that's where our text this morning ends. It's kind of a strange text, don't you think? I mean, it's just kind of one of those interlude texts. You know it's going somewhere, but you're not quite sure. What are we to make of a narrative like this for our own lives? Is there something, anything more here than an interesting account of a moment in history? In his commentary on this text, Albert Muller observed that Luke never once mentions the name of God here in Acts 25. It's true. But it doesn't follow from that that God's absent, does it? Or that God's uninterested, that God's checked out. The providential hand of God is evident in, in every Movement, every event is described in this chapter. He protected Paul. Uh, he set Paul on a trajectory toward proclaiming the gospel before the most powerful and influential people in the empire. And in a very real sense, the most powerful and influential people in the known world at that time. He strengthened Paul and, and gave him grace, empowered him to, to think clearly think on his feet, to to act wisely, to speak assertively at the most important moments. Remember the words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, where he said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Great promise. You know, what stands out to me most from this passage is the simple fact that those who wanted to bring charges against Paul couldn't find anything that they could make stick to him. He's like the Teflon apostle. Neither a a meaningful accusation nor, nor any evidence of the things of which they feebly tried to charge him. So how do we take a text like this and apply it to our own lives? What's the therefore? There is no therefore, not in the text. But what's our therefore? Where do we go? Go back with me to where all of this began in chapter twenty-three. After the Roman commander in Jerusalem, Claudius Lysias, ordered the Sanhedrin to meet to to interrogate Paul. Um, you know, after that dreadful event on the on in the temple courts, uh, Lysias had to intervene on uh, in the Sanhedrin in in the court of the Sanhedrin to prevent those leaders from tearing. Paul, limb from limb. And Luke records then in verse 11 of chapter 23, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Who said that? The Lord. See, that promise of God Directs, it, it undergirds the entire narrative of chapter 25. God's promises never fail. They never fail. Paul may not have known just exactly why God had placed him in those exact circumstances. But he trusted in the faithfulness of God to fulfill every promise he had ever made. And that enabled Paul to respond even to adversity with calm and poise. Enabled him to to understand that these events, which he did not understand, were all part of God's plan and purpose. That, That they weren't the end. Paul knew that it wasn't the end of his story because he had the promises of God. That he would testify to the gospel in Rome. It wasn't going to end in Caesarea. God has a plan and a purpose for your life as well. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul wrote about how we are saved. And he says it's not by our works, but by God's grace appropriated by faith. But that's just the beginning of the Christian life. That's just the beginning of the whole adventure. He adds in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by our works. We're saved for good works. What did he mean when he said that the good works God wants us to walk in were prepared by him beforehand? It means that the eternal God who created you, who loves you, had a person in mind for you to become, a relationship with him to enjoy, and specific things for you to do in your life long before any of them came into being. Before you came into being. And in Psalm 139, David said to God, My frame was not hidden for you, from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Thank you, Mom. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. There's this TV show called "The Days of Our Lives," right? The days that God has had in mind are a lot better than those days. Let me try, um, let me reassure you. But here's the reality: you will never become the person God wants you to be. You will never fulfill the purpose He intends for your life unless and until you put your faith in Jesus Christ and through Him enter into a personal relationship with God. Your sins forgiven, your very being transformed from within. And then the adventure begins. To the believers in Jesus at Philippi, Paul wrote, and I am sure of this, that he, that is God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Will bring it to completion. Did I say we'll bring it to completion? We'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, see what God starts in you, he perfects. What God starts in you, he completes. But it starts at the cross. Why? Because the the person that God had in mind for you to become only comes into existence through Christ. Only comes into existence through Christ. Begins at the cross. This theme of blamelessness that we see in chapter 25 of living in relationship with God and others in such a way that no charge can be brought against you as presented in many ways in the New Testament. For example, Peter wrote, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice notice it's when, not if. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day when he comes. And then in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, he writes this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those, there it is again, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Notice that in both of those passages in First in Peter, the apostle presents being spoken of as evildoers and being slandered and reviled as things that you and I should anticipate as part of the normal course of, of, of things as followers of Jesus. And then he adds that those who do the reviling will ultimately be put to shame. And it's not our job to do the shaming, brothers and sisters. That's God's. It's God's job. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, when we suffer for the gospel, and, uh, we're... and Christians have been suffering in parts of the world for over 2,000 years now, right? started back then. And it's just now kind of making its way into this country called the United States of America. But it's coming fast. Coming in the state of Washington. It's coming fast. When we suffer for the sake of Christ and for the gospel, we're following the example of Jesus who suffered to bring us to God. So Christ is our example of a willingness to suffer, of a willingness to entrust our lives to God, even in the midst of extreme adversity. But in the course of being our example, he became our Savior. Christ is our example, yes. Some people want to leave him there at that. But they can't do that if they understand the story. Christ is our example, and Christ is our only Savior. Jesus said to his disciples, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, that they may see what? Your good works. Not your baptismal certificate, as important as that might be at some level. Not your certificate of church membership, not your fish bumper sticker, not your Jesus t-shirt, but your good works, your, your lifestyle of sacrifice and of service, of faithfulness that reminds people of Jesus and points them to him. I wonder this morning whether you're ready to move beyond simply move, viewing Jesus as a good example, and you're willing to trust Him today as your Savior, your Lord, your Forgiver, your Leader. I'd like to invite you today just to to trust in Christ if you haven't done that to to transfer and. And really, I like to describe it as a transfer of trust. I I transfer my trust away from my ability to please God in any way because I can't. I just keep blowing it, blowing it, blowing it, blowing it. Moment by moment. I can't please God. I can't meet his righteous standard. And no amount of cleverness or morality or, you know, charity or whatever you want to throw into that mask. None of that will ever meet God's righteous standard. And so what do we have to do? We have have to transfer our trust from all that stuff that we think somehow is going to save us to the only thing that will, and that's the work of Christ at the cross, shedding his blood for our salvation, taking our punishment, taking the justice that should have been ours, absorbing the wrath of God that should have been poured out on us. If you'd like to pray with someone this morning about that, if you'd like to have some questions answered, we'd be happy to do that. There will be, uh, just following the service, there will be someone here that uh, will be happy to pray with you to answer any questions you might have. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, thank you for your word, for the ways that it speaks right down to where we live, even surprising passages like this one. And Lord, I pray today for those who may be standing on the edge of eternity, contemplating their decision regarding Jesus, following him, trusting him as their Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would grant to them the gift of faith that leads to life. I can't do that for them. Only you can do that for them. And so I ask, Lord, that you would, that this would be for some the day of salvation. And, and Lord, today we, uh, we thank you uh, for the challenge to live lives that, uh, uh, in, in such a way that um, when we're slandered, when we're reviled, when we're accused, uh, they can't make those things stick. And thank you, Lord, that you are in those moments when they can make those things stick, when we have lived in ways that are unpleasing to you and uh, violating of, uh, of our neighbors. Lord, thank you that you're our defender. Thank you that our sins are forgiven, that we have the gift and the hope and the confidence of eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.